let's get ready to study God's Word. to one and all. Welcome to another episode of Rightly Divide the Word of Truth. This is Andrew S. Baker, and it's time to review another Sabbath School lesson. Please be sure to visit us at biblestudy.asbzone.com, where you can find a link to the current lesson study guide, additional Bible study resources, and all our previous episodes. Before we begin our study, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the privilege that we have here. We ask that you'll please give us wisdom. Help us that we'll be clear as we articulate the lesson. We pray, Lord, that you'll grant unto our hearers wisdom and understanding. And may this be a profitable exercise to all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lesson 10 is entitled, Giving Back. Lesson 10 getting really close to the end of this quarter, already in the new year. Giving back. So this quarter we've been talking about managing for the master till he comes, right? Occupy till I come. And uh, we've had a number of good discussions about how the Christian should live, what kind of philosophy or ideology a Christian should have based on what the Bible teaches. And so now we're talking about giving back. Our memory verse, Revelation 14, 13, says this, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may have rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13, King James Version. Okay. Pretty interesting verse. Let's look at our introduction here. As we near the end of our earning years, our financial focus turns towards preserving our assets in anticipation of the end of life. I really hope that we're not waiting until the end to do it. I think the plan should always be accounting for what will occur by God's grace and prioritizing according to where you are in life, but the idea that changing the focus from one to the other, okay. The transition from working to retirement can be a very traumatic experience. (laughs) Every aspect of our lifetime has trauma associated with it because it's not seamless. And these days we don't educate our people on how to make a transition from one to the next. We go through the adolescent years, we enter adulthood, we enter into marriage and family and all the chaos associated with that, middle age, then finally retirement, and there's a lot of opportunity for drama. In terms of our finances, what is the best way to proceed? As people get older, they almost naturally begin to worry about the future. The most common fears are dying too soon, before the family's taken care of, 
living too long, outliving their assets or savings, catastrophic illness, all my resources could go at one time, and mental or physical disability, who will take care of me? These are the fears that we'll live too long. Why would that be a fear? As people get older, they almost naturally begin to worry about the future. They're worried about the future throughout. Worried about how am I going to get my child into school and how are we going to pay for this house? And there's a lot of, I mean, if we're going to discuss the topic of worry, I'm not saying that we should have that kind of anxiety because the Bible tells us that we should be anxious. We should not be anxious, right? But the common fears are premature death. Yeah, that's true. Um, before the family's taken care of, sure, if we're not being selfish and just worried about dying too early. Living too long? No, I don't. I mean, maybe I'm not there yet. Maybe that's what the problem is. I'm not there yet, so I don't know it. Outliving your assets or your savings, that's the fear. I would never phrase that as living too long. I would never think to myself, oh my, I lived to be 80, but I only had money to take me through 75 right? The fear there is that I'll have inadequate resources, not I'll have too long of a life. Okay. Perspective. Guess I don't have it. When commenting on these fears, Ellen G. White wrote, all these fears originate with Satan. If they could take the position which God would have them, their last days might be their best and happiest. They should lay aside anxiety and burdens and occupy their time as happily as they can and be ripening up for heaven. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 424. Okay, I encourage you to look at that quote and to look at the context, the broader context of that quote. Um, but she is speaking about people getting old and having these fears. This week, we will review God's counsel regarding our last years. What are things we should do? What are things we should avoid doing? And what principles should we follow? Okay, the rich fool. Read Luke 12, 16 through 21. What's the relevant message to us here? What strong rebuke did the Lord give to this foolish man? And what should that say to us regarding our attitude towards what we own? Okay, so those are all of the questions. Let's get to some of the answers. Here we go. Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool! This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, 
and is not rich towards God. Okay, powerful, powerful parable. Very powerful parable. What's the relevant message here to us? If you're storing up things for selfishness, you may be called to give an account at a very inconvenient time. Though the message is broader than this, one could argue that this was a story Jesus told about what not to do in retirement. Accordingly, if a person is quitting work to spend his accumulated assets on himself, he should beware and take this story to heart. Retirement is not quitting work. I hope that all of the points that are being made are not with the worst language. The reason I'm harping on this is because we live in a culture, especially in Western society, that overglorifies work. And when you see the language here being represented as if a person is quitting work to spend his accumulated assets on himself, the selfishness of the second half of that was enough. It didn't have to make the person look as though they had abandoned the the social fabric. If a person's retiring, retirement is a planned activity where you take your rest and transition into a different type of lifestyle. It's not quitting. To suggest that it's quitting implies that we're supposed to work till we die in a corporate sense. The problem is not with working hard or getting wealth, particularly as one gets older and perhaps even richer. The problem is with the attitude towards it. His words, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry, express the real issue here. I don't think those are the words that are the problem as I look at this passage. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Not saying that the Bible never frowns on that, right? Idleness and fullness of bread is was the sins of Sodom. But to me, to me, eat, drink, and be merry. If you look at God's response to him, that the part that God is responding to is the the goods. I have nowhere to bestow my fruits. That's verse 17. Ah, I know what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, thou hast many goods. Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. That's where the problem is. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah, that suggestion comes because of the problem. Because then God says, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be that thou hast provided? What's going to happen to all the stuff you've stored? That's where the emphasis is. Not in the eat, drink, and be merry. The issue is he's hoarding. The fact that he's going to take his leisure to eat and drink what he's hoarding is shows you that the problem is the hoarding. 
here's what Christ's object lessons say. This man's aims were no higher than those of the beasts that perish. He lived as if there were no God, no heaven, no future life, as if everything he possessed were his own and he owed nothing to God or man. Yeah, see, again, the eat, drink, and be merry is not the part. Because if he shared with everybody and also ate, drank, and be merry, no one was going to make a a big deal about that second part of the verse. The issue is the selfishness and trying to figure out, oh man, my garden grew tremendously. This is more than I anticipated. But I don't have any place to put this. I know. I'll build bigger places. That's where the problem is. If during this stage of life, we think only of ourselves and ignore the needs of others and the cause of God, we are following the example of the rich fool. Yeah, okay, so now they're stretching it too much because they should have just said, if we think only of ourselves and ignore the needs of others, because it's not only in that stage of life. You can't be selfish at any of the stages of life. There was no indication in Jesus' parable that the rich man was lazy or dishonest. The problem was in how he had spent what God had entrusted to him. Because we don't know the day of our death, we should always be ready for it by living to carry out God's will instead of pursuing a life of selfishness. The general picture given in the Bible is that a person works and remains productive as long as he or she is able. In fact, it is interesting to note that the authors of the great prophetic books of Daniel and the Revelation were, many believe, both in their 80s when they completed their work. Disagree. 90s. They were both in their 90s. This was at a time when the average age of death was about 50 years. Why do they say that? There's no, there's no indication that the average age of, of death was 50 years. If you average up the ages of people in a certain time frame, you have to be aware of certain factors which would mitigate your numbers. Okay. Infant deaths is a thing. We have had great stretches in history where children didn't live to be much older than five, where they got some kind of illness and died. And so, of course, if you have a population, which includes children, and you have a population of a thousand people, and and some percentage of the children, say 30% of the children, are dying before they hit two years of age or five years of age, right? Then what you're going to end up with is an average number. Let's say the adults make it to approximately 80, but some percentage of the children dies at five. Well, yeah, of course. Your whole average is going to is going to get pulled down to a low number, okay? But that doesn't mean that the average age at death was 50, Okay, because when you take two groups that have different life and health um, statistics associated with them and you combine them in one for a single number, 
then you have to understand that that number is not the average, is not an actual average age. Because the conditions are too broad. Right? The conditions that that you're evaluating are too broad. People lived a, a pretty good amount of time there. I mean, a lot of people died early. A lot of people died early, but we're not even at the part where Rome is uh, is completely decadent. Like, they're still a pretty good superpower. They're still a, a powerful nation, right? The powerful nation of the time. Yeah, we have to be careful with those numbers. First of all, both John the Revelator and uh, Daniel the prophet lived into their 90s, as we understand it, as the first point. The second point is the there are a number of people who lived to be to be older. I mean, think about it. Even Paul lived into his 60s. I don't think he had made 70 yet. Even people who were persecuted still made it into a good old age. Anyhow. Ellen G. White published some of her best-known and best-loved books, such as The Desire of Ages, after about age 70. Age, then, as long as we are healthy, should not mean that we stop being productive and to whatever extent possible, doing some good. Jesus counseled those waiting for his second coming, not just to watch, but to continue working as well. Matthew 24, 44-46 Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. At any age and with any amount of money, how can we avoid falling into the trap that the man did here? We have to understand that everything we have belongs to God. If we recognize that we were stewards, we wouldn't have to be coerced or prodded or poked into leveraging these resources for the grace of God. You can't take it with you. Someone once asked famous evangelist, Billy Graham, what surprised him most about life now that he was old at the time he was in his 60s. His answer, the brevity of it. Yeah, it moves fast. And then you look up and realize that you've been in a place for 10 years or your children are X years old and going about their business. Yeah, it it moves quickly. What do the following texts teach about human life here? And we have a number of texts. I know they're going to talk about the passing of time. 
Psalm 49, 17, for when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 7. Psalm 39, 1. When thou didst rebukes, when thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. James 4.14 Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even as a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth. Ecclesiastes 2, 18-22 Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. So things that are left behind, someone else gets it, and you don't have control over who gets it unless you've planned for that before. Though, of course, not everyone has an estate per se, most people, particularly as they have worked through the years, have accumulated some wealth, you hope. In the end, what will happen to that wealth after you pass on is really an important question that people should consider. For those who have possessions at the end of life, no matter how great or small our goods might be, estate planning can be our final act of stewardship, of carefully managing what God has blessed us with. Hopefully it's not our only act of stewardship. If you don't have an estate plan that you've created with a will or trust, the state's or civil government's laws can come into play. Okay, And that, of course, depends on your jurisdiction. If you die without a will, most civil jurisdictions will simply pass your assets on to your relatives, whether they need them or not, whether or not they would make good use of the money, and whether or not you would have chosen to give a portion to that person. The church will get nothing. If that's what you want, fine. If not, you need to work out your plans beforehand. In the very simplest terms, we can say that because God is the owner of everything, it would be logical to conclude from a biblical perspective that when we are finished with what God has entrusted to us, we should return to him, the rightful owner, what is left once the needs of loved ones are met. Okay? Um, we are stewards. We should, as the Bible would say, set our house in order. We should set everything up um, in an appropriate way. And... Um, and take the opportunity to uh, not only prepare our family for the future, but to use what God has given us to the best spiritual good as well as material good. Question here at the end of Monday. Death, as we know, can come at any time and unexpectedly. Isn't coming at any time unexpected? <laughs> Death, as we know, can come unexpectedly, even today. What would happen to your loved ones were you to die today? 
And what would happen to your property? Would it be distributed as you would like? So they're emphasizing here estate planning. And estate, you know, the, the term is big. Um, but estate planning, it doesn't matter if you just have a house or if you're renting, you still have things, furniture, goods. You still have things that should be handled. And it would probably be best for you to say how you'd like them to be handled while you can still say it. Right? So yes, death can come at any time. That's why we have to be prepared in advance for how our affairs will be managed. Uh, it's important, and people are usually afraid. Nobody likes to talk about death. And people are concerned about speaking about it in advance. But advance is the only time you get to plan it. You will not be able to plan it when you're dead. And depending on your illness or your situation, you don't want to wait until you're seriously um, injured or you have a serious illness. You don't want to wait for a deathbed opportunity. Oh, that's, that is the worst. If you think that is the worst, if you think that it'll be chaos if you die without a will and all of the fighting that will happen with family far and wide, especially if you have any kind of, of money or, or material resources, just imagine what happens if you leave that off until your deathbed when you are struggling with disease or illness or whatever, um, injury, etc. And you've got people coming out of the woodwork to try and, and position themselves to be in your will in a certain way. Nah, that's stuff you want to have well-established, well in advance, so that there's no question as to whether you were in your right mind when you did it, whether you're being manipulated by friends or family or friends of family. You don't want any of that nonsense. I have seen too much of that chaos in the lives of people I know. On to Tuesday. Begin with personal needs. In Old Testament times, many of the children of Israel were farmers and shepherds. Thus, some of God's promised blessings were couched in farm language. For example, in Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, God says that if we are financially faithful with Him, our barns will be filled with plenty. Okay. It is likely that many Christians don't have a barn today, so we understand that God will bless our work or business if we're willing to follow and obey Him. I would not have said that the promised blessings were couched in farm language. The Bible was written to people at a specific time. The Bible tells us that it's also written to us. So if you're going to write to two different groups of people, you need to be very precise in what you're conveying so that both groups will understand. I would not say that the Bible, that the promises were couched in farm language. One of the things we don't appreciate is that had Israel been faithful and had accepted Christ, or even before accepted Christ, had they accepted the gospel in its entirety from the Old Testament times, and then would have accepted the ministry of Christ as he came, and then 
would have embraced him so that their probation didn't run out, right? So imagine that all of the probationary things that happened to Israel didn't happen. They entered the promised land properly. They embraced the mission, their mission to the to the Gentiles. They embraced the whole concept of the gospel, and they were in line with God. They were never faithless, never fell into idolatry, uh, never ended up in captivity, okay? Let's assume that that happened. Agriculture is all we would have, right? The point that I'm making is that we sometimes behave as though the Bible was only intended for us and that all the people in between that the stories are about or that the messages were originally to are just speed bumps on the way to getting to us. It's all about us. And of course, we live in a technological world and in the big cities and da-da-da-da-da. We are living in the abnormal. We're not living in the mode that the Bible times were, were in. And the way we're living is not the way it's going to be after the second coming. There's only one city mentioned in the scripture that is God-sanctioned, and we're going to be part-time residents of it. That's the New Jerusalem. The rest of the time, we're going to build houses and live in them. We're going to be back to what was there. If, if Adam didn't fall, we'd all be doing agriculture. We'd all be doing agriculture. It's not as if some people were going to run off and build cities. If you look at the creation of cities, the formation of cities in the scripture, is always with the bad team. The good guys don't go off and form cities. All of the cities you see mentioned, bad guys. The promises of Scripture are not couched in farm language. The promises of the Scripture were promises to people in an agrarian society, and therefore they were agrarian promises. The principle of those promises is broader than just the agrarian. Fine. Totally accept that. But the idea that the promises are couched in farm language implies that that was just a catering to where the people were. And that's a terrible concept. We say that all the time. We, we, I hear it a lot. It's as though all of the folks prior to now were ignorant and backwards. Nothing further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. <clears throat> some Christians have farms today, some do not. There's so many ways in which we are more damaged because we are not paying attention to agriculture and farming. As a society, we're more damaged. As Christians, we're more damaged. There's certain things we don't understand from the scriptures because the fact is that that agricultural metaphor is more apt. Christ is the good shepherd. And when we don't understand shepherding, we lose a little on the interpretation of that. We lose a little of the impact of that message. That's on us. That's not on God. Adam was placed in a garden to start. All of God's people up to a certain point were all in the agricultural realm. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all in the agricultural realm, and got wealthy doing it. Right? And I'm I'm saying that for a reason, because I wouldn't be throwing the wealth thing around, but we're we're gonna come into some stuff in this lesson. Anyway, let me not get sidetracked too much, but I don't I don't like it when we make excuses for for the way things were written in the scripture as though God had to cater to them. God is catering to us because we have deviated from the path. So now everything that involves us has to be adjusted because because where we live and how we live today, the vast majority of people who call on the name of Christ today, where we live and how we live is not in harmony with the Bible, not aligned to the Bible. And as a result, additional um, adjustments have to be made for us. Accommodations have to be made for us because otherwise we would be ignorant of the scriptures and ignorant of the power of God and unprepared for the final realities. We're not going to have technology in heaven. Proverbs 27, 23 through 27. Actually, before we do that, let me see if I can find this passage here. The Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be plenty and thy presses shall burst with new wine. Okay, that's not couched in, that's not a promise couched in, in farm language. That's an actual promise to farmers. That's one. Two, it doesn't say if we're financially faithful with him. If we are faithful stewards. Because stewardship is more than finances. And that's the problem with behaving as though everything in the past was just an accommodation for them. And that everything, and it was designed according to how we are now. How we are now is we look at everything strictly as financial. Stewardship is broader than just finances. Your accountability is more than just the money. Let's look at Proverbs 27, 23 through 27 and see what it says. Let's go. Proverbs 27. Here we go. Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. For riches are not forever and doth the crown endure to every generation. The hay appeareth and the tender grass showeth itself and herbs of the mountains are gathered. The lambs are for thy clothing, and the goats for the price of the field. And thou shalt have goat's milk enough for thy food, and for the food of thy household, and for the maintenance of thy maidens. Okay. How would you interpret, be diligent to know the state of your flocks for Christians living today? How would you interpret it? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that language either. And I am sure... You can say that I'm being nitpicky. I am being nitpicky. And the reason I'm being nitpicky is when we misinterpret scripture, we put ourselves in a place where we don't understand what God is saying. This is not a matter of interpreting what the scripture says. This is a matter of understanding what the scripture says and then applying it to cover for the differences. Okay? You don't have to interpret that. It's straightforward. 
pay attention to the state of your flocks and herds. Obviously, the person being spoken to is primarily agricultural, but for the moment, do you understand it in English? Okay? Be diligent to know the state of your flocks. Stay on top of the status of your flocks and your herds. And the reason you have to do it is verse 24. For riches are not forever. Riches are not automatic. Just because you got rich doesn't mean you'll stay rich. Riches are not forever. And doth the crown endure to every generation. So he's saying that wealth and position and status don't last simply because you got them. You got it. It can go away. You acquired it. Your, you, your father, your grandfather was a king. Your father was a king. That doesn't mean you'll be a king unless you're diligent in your dealings. The hay appeareth, and the tender grass showeth itself, and the herbs of the mountains are gathered. Okay? Again, talking about if you're diligent, these things are going to happen. Thy, the lambs, the lambs are for thy clothing, and the goats are the price of the field. <laughs> so the goats are kind of a reward that you get. They cover the price of the field. The goats are the ones that, that essentially mow the grass. You can get milk from them. In fact, he's going to say that in the next verse. You get milk from them. You can use them to produce money for you, whether it's in their offspring or in, in their produce. And thou shalt have goat's milk enough for thy food, for the food of thy household, and for the maintenance of thy maidens. All of these verses, right, 25, 26, and 27, happen if 23 happens. If you're diligent to know the state of your flocks and you look well to your herds, then all these other things will happen. 24 is why you should be diligent. 23 is be diligent. 24 is, and here's why you should be diligent. Because this stuff doesn't just happen. It doesn't just stay. Just because your father was rich doesn't mean you'll be rich, even if you inherit all the stuff he leaves behind. And then 25 through 27 outlines it. This is not a matter of how should we interpret that. This is a matter of what does it mean? What did it mean to the people who heard it the first time? What does it mean to people today, living today, who are farmers? Because there are people who are farmers. It's not like farming went extinct. Just because the percentage of people farming has diminished, there are plenty of people that farm even in the United States, much less in some other countries. Okay. So first of all, what does it mean? You don't have to interpret anything. What does it mean? Once you understand what it means, now how will I translate the principles of what that means to match what I'm doing if I'm not a farmer? Right? That's how we need to approach Scripture. What does the thing say plainly? Okay, it says that plainly to these people. Great. Is your situation in sync with those people? Yes. Then the instruction is plain. Is your situation the same with those people? No. Okay. What is the principle of that instruction? Great. Now, how do you apply that principle to your scenario, which is off from that one in some way? That's what it is. Okay. As soon as you get in the land of interpretation, it's, it's what it's saying. When you have to interpret something, it's essentially saying that the statement doesn't mean what the statement says. You have to pull a meaning from it. Okay, when you, when you look at prophecy as an example, 
and you see that a beast did something. Well, obviously, an animal didn't do something, a creature didn't do something. So what does it mean? You have to interpret what that means. You have to line up things on both sides and figure out what it means. That's where interpretation comes in. But when you say to someone, be diligent to know the state of your flocks and look well to your herds, that's what it means. Pay attention to your flocks and your herds. Oh, you don't have flocks and herds? Fine. What's the principle of paying attention to the flocks and herds? Great. It's about paying attention to the resources that you have that make up your income. Pay attention to that because your income is not just going to take care of itself. You have to handle it. You have to manage it. Okay? So how would we interpret it for Christians today? Be diligent in your resources. The resources that are necessary to provide income for you and your family, be diligent. And if you are diligent, then those resources will be enough to provide for your food, the food of your household, and the maintenance of your servants or helpers. Now, we're going to get into a paragraph that I'm going to challenge. It says, however much the Bible warns against the rich trampling on the poor or being greedy with their wealth, Scripture never condemns wealth or people's effort to acquire wealth, provided, of course, they don't do it dishonestly or through oppressing others. Incorrect. Disagree with that sentence. I disagree with parts of the sentence, to be fair. Scripture never condemns wealth or people's efforts to acquire wealth? Really? Solomon says, labor not to be rich. That seems to be a blatant don't pursue wealth for the sake of wealth. It doesn't say about anything about how, right? It doesn't say anything about how. It doesn't say about how you use it or why. Proverbs 23 verse 4, labor not to be rich. Proverbs 28, 22, he that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye and considereth not the poverty shall come upon him. So, having said that, I categorically, categorically reject this statement. And this is not the first time they've done it. Within the past few weeks, they've been dancing around this issue of, oh, the Bible doesn't really condemn wealth, um, which is a true statement, does not condemn wealth, But, or people's efforts to acquire wealth? Absolutely incorrect. Bible has a lot to say on people's efforts to acquire wealth. The Bible frowns on everybody who tried to become wealthy, even though it points out a number of people in the Bible who were wealthy, good guys. Your Abrahams, your Isaacs, your Jacobs, your Davids, your Solomons. And even Solomon is, on, is borderline because of some later stuff. Okay? The Bible doesn't condemn people who get rich. It certainly condemns people attempting to. So, the scripture never condemns wealth, fine, or people's efforts to acquire wealth, incorrect. Incorrect. And it has nothing to do with whether it's honestly or dishonestly. In fact, the, the implication is that if you pursue wealth, you're halfway to the path of dishonesty, right? Because that's what, that's what Solomon says. He that hasteneth to be rich hath an evil eye, <laughs> right? Hasteneth to be rich. Didn't even say that you got to the riches yet. 
You're on the way. He who is speeding on his way to become rich already has an evil eye. That's what the Bible says. So you can't call that a lack of a condemnation. That is definitely condemnation. Okay. How would we rephrase that verse today? Maybe we would suggest review your financial records and determine the state of your affairs. No, I would not re- I would not rephrase that today that way. They have a really financial centric view that again is flawed and this is why we have so much trouble today in educating people about stewardship because every time they see the word stewardship they substitute the word financial management and stewardship is way broader than financial management. This thing says be diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. So if you were running a business today of any kind, unimportant, you would not be saying, pay attention to your money. You'd be saying, pay attention to your tools and equipment, because that's what your flocks and your herds are. The flocks and the herds for the agricultural person are not the money. They are the means by which the wealth is managed. Sure, individually, you can trade a cow a goat, oxen, whatever. But the oxen also gets used to plow, right? It's money in a different sense. It's money for its value in being able to plow, not just because it's meat, right? Your milk cow has a particular value. So if I were paraphrasing this, I would not say review your financial records and determine the state of your affairs. No. I would say, pay attention to your business records and the state of your equipment and look well to your business tools and, and et cetera, right? Business assets. Because they're going to make you money. And if you don't know that they're in good maintenance, that they're not stolen, misused, that they're they're not old in need of repair, need to be replaced. If you don't understand those things, riches are going to go away. That's what's being said, not just financial affairs. Because those will have an impact on financial affairs. You, as an example, as an example, let's say that, that you read that passage and, and you own a business that has some equipment and produces some revenue And you read it and you interpret it like they did, right? You decide you're going to paraphrase it into into review your financial records and determine the state of your affairs. And you look at your financial books and you're like, oh, this is good. Revenue is up 10% year over year. Prospects are looking pretty good. We're picking up a new customer every three or four months. Everything is good. And you walk away and you fail in a year, because you didn't pay attention to this verse, which said, be diligent to know the state of thy flocks. Because your equipment needs repair. There are industry changes that are coming out from regulations or um, compliance, whatever, that's going to change the way that you need to use your equipment. There's new technology in the field coming out that will be more efficient. But you didn't pay attention to your equipment. You just paid attention to your books and the financial statements. 
and you felt you were okay. But soon your stuff is up for repair. Meanwhile, your competitors went and picked up new tools, new processes, and they're able to generate twice as much revenue for the same amount of labor as they were doing last year. And now you're behind. And now verse 24 comes into play. Riches are not forever, and the crown did not endure to every generation because you did not look well to the things that were being mentioned. Okay? Again, a balance sheet and understand your debt-to-equity ratio. No! No, 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 no. And this is why I disagreed with them and and the term interpretation. Because they simply said, let me think about how I would do this in a new time without saying, do I even understand what was being asked in the old time? No. This verse talks about understanding how everything that you have is operating. And that's what needs to happen. The last paragraph says, In short, good stewardship of what God has blessed us with doesn't deal only with what we have while alive, but also what happens after we're gone. (sighs) Let, Let me go up a paragraph. From time to time during your earning years, it would be appropriate to review your will and other documents and your present assets and update them as necessary. Documents such as wills and trusts are put in place early in a state planning process in order to be a protection against untimely death or of not being able for health reasons to decide about where your assets should go. The idea is to plan ahead for what will happen to your possessions once they are no longer yours. Okay, that's an ignorant statement, by the way. Once your possessions are no longer yours, you have no control over them. The idea of of asset planning, of estate planning, is to ensure that your assets go where you would like them to go when you can no longer say what you would like to have happen. Okay? The, The reason that estate planning works at all is because the assets are still considered yours. It's just that the instructions predate your untimely death, or it might be timely death, but whatever the case is, the instructions were from a period before you died. And so people will act on those things that belonged to you, even though you are no longer around to see it. If, for whatever reason, those possessions stop being yours or are no longer considered yours, no will on earth is going to get anyone to move them anywhere. A will only works with possessions that are considered to be yours. I don't know why they kind of went off the rails this week, but eh. the idea of estate planning, and they went all over the countryside to try and, and substantiate this point. The idea of estate planning is that while you are of sound mind and body, you articulate how you want things to be divided up should you meet an untimely death or any kind of death, okay? Any kind of death. Because we don't know when we're going to die even when it's not, you know, fine, you make it into your 80s and 90s. 
death still comes when you're not entirely prepared for it. Begin with personal needs. Uh, this, this whole day is going to give me trauma. Let's go to Wednesday. Deathbed charity. Okay. Let's see some verses they give us. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Um, that's 1 Timothy 6.17. So what they're asking us is, what principles can we take from the following text regarding how we should deal with money? Okay, not be high-minded. That was the first one. Let's look at the second one, 2 Corinthians 4, 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What principles can we take from the following text about how we should deal with money? I don't think this verse helps at all. Unless they're saying, think about the eternal with regard to money. Okay. Proverbs 30, verse 8. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. This doesn't say anything about how we should deal with money. Okay. And Ecclesiastes 5, 10. Here we go. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, neither he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. And this is another one that tells you that chasing riches is bad. Um, okay, so we, we shouldn't chase it. All right? That's what's being that's what's being told us here. We shouldn't chase it. Money can have a powerful hold on human beings. With God's power, we can overcome the enemy's attempt to take what was meant to be a blessing and turn it into a curse. We can overcome the enemy's attempt to take what was meant to be a blessing and turn it into a curse. In the context of being a good steward and planning for death, one danger that people face is the temptation to hoard assets now, justifying that hoarding with the idea that when I die, I can give it all away then. Although better than just spending it all now, we can and should do better than that. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 154, says the following. I saw that many withhold from the cause while they live, quieting their consciences that they will be charitable at death. They hardly dare exercise faith and trust in God to give anything while living. But this deathbed charity is not what Christ requires of his followers. It cannot excuse the selfishness of the living. Those who hold fast their property till the last moment surrender it to death rather than to the cause. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's interesting. Losses are occurring continually. Banks fail and properties consumed in very many ways. Many purpose to do something but they delay the matter and Satan works to prevent the means from coming into the treasury at all. It is lost before it is returned to God and Satan exults that it is so. That's interesting. Deathbed charity. So she's saying that 
You need to act when you can act, when you can see the thing going in the way that you need it to go. You need to act. There's a lot of good reason for this, by the way. Again, it's stewardship. The most powerful statement in there for me is those who hold fast their property till the last moment surrender it to death rather than to the cause. Meaning they had no choice. They gave it up because because their mortality came upon them. They didn't give it up willingly. They gave it up almost grudgingly. That's not a cheerful giver scenario. But the other consideration is this. When you give via deathbed charity, you tend to give large lump sums. I'm not blaming everyone. I'm not saying that every situation is going to turn out like this. But I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that you create more of a burden for an organization when you throw a ton of money at them than when you provide for them on a a steady basis ongoing. Okay? Because it's not like organizations, charities, etc. are not run by people. And it's not like people don't have problems with greed. And I'm not referring to personal greed. I'm not suggesting that someone will will take a large donation and and, um, embezzle it or anything like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the way that a charity that might get $1,000 out of you every year or or 5000 a year for 10 years might behave very differently if you just dropped 50000 on them. Okay? They might suddenly, their eyes get big with different projects that need to be done. And maybe they do need to do these projects. And maybe they do need to do some major things that they can't do because they don't have that kind of cash flow. But as a technologist, I can tell you that big projects have a lot of waste in them and a lot of complexity and a lot of scope creep. Scope creep being you had a plan to do X, but all of a sudden your eyes get big and it's X plus Y plus Z. And now there's all sorts of complexity in there. The other thing about massive donations on the deathbed that are a problem. If you give during your life, like I was giving to certain charities, a certain amount each month. And then one year I decided, okay, when December comes, we're going to stop doing this one and we're going to do this other one because I feel more aligned to the other purpose. Okay? And I stopped it and went in that other direction. Okay? If I had just dropped 50000 on them someplace, of course I'm dying, right? Because this is a deathbed conversion we're talking about. So, of course, I'm dying. I drop the 50000 on them and I move on. But if I had been giving through my life, I might have given up one for a time and then given another for a time and then given a third for a time. Or maybe somebody's um, uh, somebody's mission changes and so you change away from them or toward them, as the case might be. The point is, we, if we manage our stewardship responsibility in real time, We can affect change in real time, point one. Point two, we can make sure that we're aligned with the mission or that they are aligned with our mission when we're giving to them. And if that alignment changes, either for the better or for the worse, we can make adjustments in life as opposed to leaving a massive sum on someone whose legacy, whose whose alignment might change 
from what your alignment had been, but now that ship has sailed. You've just dumped on them a, a truckload of money. Um, deathbed conversion, sure. If if you if you want your will to say, listen, if we come down to the end and these things here help so and so with this and help so and so with that and help so and so with the other, but we should be giving all throughout life. We should be giving all throughout life. And one of the points that is made in this quote from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5. One of the key points is they hardly dare exercise faith and trust in God to give anything while living. What is she saying? They're not willing to do sacrificial giving where they might have to depend on God to cover for them. I'm, I'm sacrificially giving here, Lord, because I feel that the cause has a need now, and um, and I'm giving out of sacrifice and so I'm going to need help with all these other things that I also have to do, right? When we give sacrificially, we are trusting God to cover bases for us, to make a way for us elsewhere. If we only give where it won't hurt us, I'm not saying that you, that the recipients of that aren't going to care for it. If I can give $100 to a charity every month and it doesn't hurt me at all, I'm sure the charity is not going to turn it down because it didn't come with tears and, and blood and sweat. Right, But at the same time, what am I saying if I only give out of my excess? How important is this cause? Especially when we're not just talking about some random charity, but things pertaining to the gospel. I'm not saying you should go into debt to be charitable, but I am saying that it should cost you something. Or at least the Bible is saying that it should cost you something, and I agree. Thursday. Spiritual legacy. Spiritual legacy. They say, though it's hard to know what life would have been on earth had humans not sinned. That's a funny statement. I don't know how you could ever make it, but that's a funny statement. One thing we can know for sure, there would have been no hoarding, no greed, no poverty. We know exactly what it would have been like if there had been no sin. We know what Adam was doing. Why don't we think that other people would have been doing it? I don't. Okay. Sometimes they just write things to write things. What is the central point of the texts? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna read these texts they want us to read here, and they want to figure out what the central point, and how should that point impact what we do with whatever material God has blessed us with. Okay, let's go through the text and see these central points. Now, lately, I have not been going through all the texts that we've been looking at, but I feel very much impressed to do that now because there's so many weird things that are being said in the lesson, and I don't want us to leave with those impressions. Okay. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Okay. Let's see. They say, what's the central point in all of them? Now, I'm going to wait till I read the second one to see if the points are the same. Hebrews 3 and verse 4. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. Okay, so we're seeing a pattern of, of God building and making things. Psalm 50 verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Of course, you have to know the context that it is God speaking here. Otherwise... It'll be hard to determine. So God is pointing out himself as the owner, right? 
Earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, ownership. He that built all things is God, also ownership. Every beast of the forest is mine, clearly ownership. Genesis 14, 19. And he blessed him, <laughs> that's Melchizedek blessing Abraham, and said, blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. So ownership. And then Colossians 1, 15 through 17, Christ created everything. So again, ownership. So what's the central point in all of them? That God is the owner. How should that point impact what we do with the material that God has blessed us with? Well, he's the owner. So what we have, what he gives us, is a matter of stewardship, meaning we're going to have to give an account at some point. We're going to have to give a report at some point. Right? Here's the quote. Um, or they say, we are stewards and managers of what he has entrusted to us. That is, God ultimately owns it all, and he is the one who gives us life, existence, and strength to have anything at all. It is only logical, then, that when we are finished with what God has given us and have taken care of our family, we should return the rest to him. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that that's the right interpretation at all. It's only logical then that we have to manage what we have in a way that he can call us to account at any time and get a good answer. Right? Because let's not pretend that God just says at the beginning of life, here, here's $50,000. Here's a million dollars. Take care of this throughout your life. And then we go about and do whatever we want. And then on a deathbed, we make sure that some money goes back to the church. That's not what happens. Tithe and offering is an ongoing reminder of stewardship. It's an ongoing financial accountability. Stewardship accountability, better yet. Okay. Here's a quote from Councils on Stewardship, page 342. In giving to the work of God, you are laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay, so that's the most blatant statement we've had on that in the past few weeks. All that you lay up above is secure from disaster and loss and is increasing to an eternal and enduring substance and will be registered to your account in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so being stewards now will count for us now. There are many advantages to giving now while we live. They say the donor can actually see the results of the gift. <laughs> a new church building, a young person in college, evangelistic, campaign funded. The ministry or person can benefit now when the need is greatest. There's no fighting among family or friends after your death. I don't know that that's a plus, <laughs> right? If you're dead, the dead know nothing. So whoever's fighting is fighting. Um, it, in fact, if they are upset with you for giving away your your herd, your um, earnings now, um, you're going to have to witness all of that chaos. And I say that um, in a slightly humorous way, but think about it. The same set of people who would fight about your will after you died are the people that will be annoyed 
either secretly or openly, about the fact that you're giving away the wealth that would go to a will, you're giving it away in advance, right? Okay, it sets a good example of family values, of generosity and love for others. Okay, fine, number four is good. It minimizes estate tax consequence. Okay, that is true. That's true. I don't think we need to downplay that. Six, it guarantees that the gift will be made to your desired entity. No interference from courts or disgruntled relatives. That's true. That's true. Um, Seven, it demonstrates that the heart of the donor has been changed from selfishness to unselfishness. Not necessarily true. The donor could be paying a lot of attention to number five. Eight, it stores up treasure in heaven. Yeah, that should have been advantage number one. There's another, um, there's another advantage. It sets the precedent for your life of philanthropy. And this is important when someone inevitably attempts to, to contest the will and why you're given half a million dollars to the church when you only gave the, your grandson <laughs> $30,000. I'm just throwing out numbers, right? I know that everyone doesn't have those numbers and that some people have more. But the point being, just the contrast, the point being, if you're always giving to the church, if your record, your life of stewardship shows that the majority of your money goes to the church after you've taken care of your family's needs, needs, not wants, needs, then it's going to be much harder for anyone to contest in death. It's going to be much harder for them to contest in death because the pattern of your life will show you to be someone who was giving to the church. Further thought, further thought. The councils, the book Councils on Stewardship is a very good book to read. But let's look at, at uh, Friday, further thought. There's a lot of stuff here. Um, they give us a number of places to look at, a number of, of books in various testimonies to look at. And then she writes in this section on estate planning and councils on stewardship. That which many propose to defer until they are about to die, if they were Christians indeed, they would do while they have a strong hold on life. They would devote themselves and their property to God, and while acting as his stewards, they would have the satisfaction of doing their duty. By becoming their own executors, they could meet the claims of God themselves instead of shifting the responsibility upon others. Yeah, don't, don't make some executor out to be the bad guy when he's reading the will in front of the 20 grandchildren and saying, Bob, Mary, Sue, blah, 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 blah. Here's $10. And church, here's $50,000, right? Don't make someone else have to be the bad guy. Do that. It's your money. Do it. Make it go where it's supposed to go. And upon death, There'll be very little that needs to be executed anywhere, and it is what it is. Okay? Become your own executor. Manage that money directly because you know how you got it and you know what your, your plan and desire is to do.
For the Christian, the second coming of Christ is the blessed hope. We all have imagined how awesome it'll be to see Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. We are eager to hear the words, well done. But what if we should be laid to our rest before Jesus returns? If we have followed his revealed will, we can have the satisfaction now of seeing the work go forward because of our efforts, knowing that because of our estate plan, the work will continue after we're gone. I, hmm. Estate plan should be a plan of last resort, right? It should be a plan of last resort. It's almost as though they missed Tuesday, uh, Thursday's lesson. We should be giving while we're alive. And yes, you want to write up things so that everything is finalized in death because death could be untimely. But again, you should be actively living and, and doing these things, managing these affairs while you are alive. That's what needs to happen. Emphasis on while you are alive. When you die, all of that other stuff is just a plus. It's just the, the final work. We need to keep that in mind. They have two discussion questions here. First one is, is uh, why is laying up treasure in heaven not the same as trying to earn salvation? Because it isn't. It's a consequence consequence of a relationship right Jesus says lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven so that's what you're doing you're obeying Jesus you're not trying to get brownie points you can't get brownie points all of he told all of his disciples to do it he didn't say hey I want you to believe on me and trust me and you'll be saved and if you happen to do any of the following things from this next list, you can get extra points. He didn't say that. He lists all of these things as things that are essential for the kingdom. Question two. While we should be generous in giving with what we have now, we should also be wise. How often have we heard people, particularly date setters, make appeals for money because such and such an event is going to happen such and such a date. And so, because our money will be useless then, we better send it to this ministry now. How can we learn to discern between this trickery and legitimate ways that we can use our money now for the cause of God? I think the question answers itself. You should be making an appeal You should be paying attention to appeals from established locations or entities that are doing work that you can tell what that work is. You know what that work is and how it applies to the gospel. And so they say that they need money for a particular project that they're doing. Hey, we're trying to get Steps to Christ out to all of these places by such and such a time. Sure. You know that they're legit, and you go along with that. But simply hearkening to an appeal for something that you don't normally do or aren't familiar with, don't do that. 
Like pray for discernment. Pray for discernment. Okay, let's go back to our verse. Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Okay, the emphasis that they were trying to make when they picked this verse is that even after we've died, if we follow estate planning, et cetera, and so on, our work and whatever income we make or had made previously will continue to work on and bless someone. Okay, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your mercy to us, your goodness, your love. We ask you to please be with us and help us that we will understand the concept of stewardship, especially as it pertains to estate planning. Help us not to be hoarding wealth. Help us not to be seeking wealth. Help us not to um, withhold from your cause wealth that we may have access to. Help us to understand the nature of what is going on and really be willing to help diminish the various ministries that are helping spread the good news of the gospel. This we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. You can email us at biblequestions at asbzone.com. We look forward to hearing from you, whether you have questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns. Don't forget to check out the full description of this episode at biblestudy.asbzone.com to ensure that you can access the linked resources and any related podcast episodes. This podcast is available on all the major platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Please remember us in your prayers. Until we meet again next time, may God richly bless you as you prayerfully study and share his holy word.